Well, this morning I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. If you turn with me there, we're going to pay attention to the words of Jesus and Lord willing we would stand on them and not be shaken for they are a rock. They're a foundation for our faith. This morning we're in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to begin our study this morning in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through verse 30. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Before we read that together, just a moment, let's set the stage. We established in the first week of this series, just a few weeks ago, that this sermon of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, is his proclamation of the way of his kingdom. And at the end of the chapter 4, Jesus is preaching the gospel of the kingdom among people, and it it's gospel, right? It's, it's good news. It's his proclamation. It's his gospel. It's his way. And it's all because he is the king, foundational to our understanding of the Sermon on the Mount. But if he's the king, what is the response that the king requires to the proclamation of the good news of the kingdom? I mean, you might think it might be excitement. Yeah, the king's here and he's got a way. We like it. Maybe it's fear. The king's here. Uh Uh-oh. And he has a way, right? Maybe it's enlistment. Sign me up. I want to be a part of that kingdom. I want to be a a warrior for the king, right? Well, what is the response that the king himself expects? If you look back just a couple verses in chapter 4, verse 17, he gives explicitly, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What is the response that the king expects and requires to the proclamation of the good news of the kingdom? That it's at hand. It's literally one hand's length away. The response that the king expects is repent. But is it possible that when some hear the proclamation, the announcement of the kingdom, that some might respond, that's great news, I love it. I like what you're saying, Jesus, about mercy. That's great. Peacemakers. I love that. I definitely like what Jesus is doing with with all his miracles and stuff. I mean, it's very nice. It's quite generous of him. It's good to see around here. Maybe even I might find myself in a position where I need that sort of help someday. So good thing we've got a king like that. But I don't really need to repent, right? I mean... I've paid close attention to the law and ask anyone who knows, I'm all good as it regards that. I'm glad to hear about the kingdom. I think it's good news, but that repentance bit, that seems a bit over the top. This is where Jesus' words from last week in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, right before our reading this morning, becomes so piercing. Here What he says, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If anybody had nothing to worry about, it would be the scribes and the Pharisees, you would think. 
I mean, maybe they're a bit arrogant. Perhaps they carry a a bit of a self-righteous air, but surely they're the type of people that Jesus is looking to enlist into his kingdom. What a great benefit it would be to have the the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees present if you're going to be a king like Jesus is. And then Jesus begins to unpack his teaching. This is where we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 21. I encourage you to follow along with me. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there is and there remember that your brother has something against you leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and that you be put in prison truly I say to you you will never get out until you have paid the last penny You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better to lose one of your members than to that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, Cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Heavenly Father, this teaching is, it must be heavenly. It's it's not the way that we would think, the way that we have acted, the way that we have walked. It must be away from another place, another kingdom, another king. That sounds so severe that we we liked what we were hearing when we opened up your sermon, and now it's becoming uncomfortable. And so we submit ourselves to you in prayer that you are Heavenly Father, that there must be something that you would teach us, that you would not crush us but that you would teach us, that you would change us, that you would see us conformed into your image. I pray that we would hear your, the Son speak of his kingdom, that your Spirit would work in our hearts, and that you would work the transformation that your prophets have foretold, that we would come to believe, that we would come to trust, and that by the work of Jesus, we would come to enter into this beautiful kingdom. Lord, we trust for these things this morning that you would do them by your word even this morning. Thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. In the name of the King, we pray. Amen. So those of you who are familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, these are just the first two of six teachings that he's about to launch into in the remainder of chapter 5. Uh, Each one is difficult to hear. 
We find that we don't measure up to any of them, that we were kind of excited to hear how we could be even more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees, and then we discover that we don't stand a chance very quickly. And so the question that I have this morning is, what are these teachings? These are the first two of six, as I've mentioned. But Jesus has said, when he begins with those beatitudes at the beginning that sound so beautiful, and then he moves on to his statement that he has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And each of these six teachings begins with the same sort of phrasing. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. Now, when he says that, each of these six times, it begs this question. Is Jesus drawing a contrast? I mean, it used to be like this, but I'm going to tell you it's going to be like this, right? Or is Jesus giving an explanation? I'll tip my hat right at the beginning of the message this morning and say that I fall solidly on the ladder. Jesus is not tossing out the law. I mean, how could he? Let's be clear. What Jesus is referring to when he says in our passage this morning, you have heard that it was said, is a direct quotation in the first two instances of one of the Ten Commandments. And he's already said that he isn't here to abolish the law. So how could he say that's the way it used to be, but now it's like this? The way of the kingdom is a way that upholds and then fulfills is in continuity with all of what we now call the Old Testament, all of what it has taught us about God and his way. This morning, I think we will see very quickly, surely, that Jesus is giving an explanation, and yet it's clear that it's more than an explanation. I mean, what really needs to be explained about this statement you shall not murder. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach a sermon this morning in which all I do is I explain to you what, what I mean by you shall not murder. So here's, here's the main point. Like, don't kill people. Okay? Any, anyone have any questions? You know? If it's just an explanation, he could have just offered the quote. We get it. Right? There's something more that is being said, but it's not less than that. Jesus is is not only making a quotation and then explaining what the quotation says. Jesus is giving what I think is, is most helpfully called an interpretation of the law. Much like the prophets did. They've done the same thing. Jesus runs in a line of the prophets. He offers a profound wisdom and authority like the prophets, but even greater. Right? When he comes, the people recognize his authority. and They say, that interpretation, that sounds like a king speaking about his own law. In this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is comparing God's own interpretation of the law against the interpretation of the religious establishment. The Sermon on the Mount is not a contrast between the Old Testament and what Jesus has come to say. It's a contrast between what God understands the law to say, and therefore the standard by which we will be judged, and what the religious establishment understands the law to say. Now, that's nice because we're not in there anyway. It's just God against the religious establishment, right? But perhaps there's also the reality that what is being said is God is giving us the interpretation of the law 
as opposed to what our hearts have interpreted it to say. Consider these words from the prophets. I want you to see that Jesus' words here are in line with what has come before, but even more profound and with an even greater authority. Jesus stands in continuity and fulfillment, not only of the law, but you remember the law and the prophets. Isaiah 29, verse 13. These will be on the screen behind me as well. Follow along with me. Isaiah 29, 13. This people draws near with their mouth and honors me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. Hosea 6, 6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Is he saying I don't want burnt offerings or sacrifice? No, he's not saying that. But he's saying the problem is a lack of love or knowledge of God. You hear that? The prophets are drawing a contrast between religious formalism and an actual act of humble submission before God. Just sounds like the Sermon on the Mount to me. Listen to Ezekiel eleven nineteen through 20. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their heart of flesh and give them a heart of flesh and that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. That's a beautiful promise, a promise of the prophets, a hope that's fulfilled when the kingdom of God comes. That promise is being fulfilled with the coming of the king and the way of his kingdom. Jeremiah 32, 37, and they shall be my people and I will be their God and I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. All will finally be right when we behold our God and King and when he deeply transforms us so that we know the King's way. Then we will learn to actually walk in the way of the King. For the first time, we see righteousness face to face in the face of the King. And then we have this. It's one of the most precious statements in the Old Testament. Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. Follow the reasoning of this. With what shall I come before the Lord? Now, there's a great question that the Sermon on the Mount will make you ask, right? He answers it right away, by the way. The first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? So you see, would he be pleased with my religious formalism, with my external behaviors? And what if I took it to the extreme, right? I'm going to knock it out. I'm going I'm to be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now that's taking things not only to the extreme, but too far. 
Still won't work. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice. To love kindness. Do you see that? To love. Like from here. And to walk humbly with your God. Micah has laid religious formalism and self-righteousness bare for what it is. The Lord has required a poverty of spirit that beholds and treasures the righteousness of God. I love the way of God, so I'm going to walk with Him. I love the kindness of God, so I'm going to walk with Him. I love the justice of God, so I'm going to walk with Him. Did God really say that? The answer is an unequivocal yes. We, we have heard him say this. And if our hearts weren't as hard as Pharaoh's, we would have understood. This is not a new teaching that Jesus has brought. He is bringing a clarity that has actually been there for us from the beginning. You see, Jesus is not giving a new law that's to be rigidly, formally, legalistically upheld in order to engender in ourselves a new Sermon on the Mount level self-righteousness, a new radical obedience. He isn't taking one religious formalism and then replacing it with a moral formalism in the form of six new commandments for us tucked into chapter 5. How many of us have done that? For those of you who maybe grew up with the Sermon on the Mount, maybe you've paid attention to it along the way, how many times have we gone to it and say, all right, I'm going to try and figure out how you could do chapter 5? How you could do these six things that he seems to require? Sadly, this is the way that many have treated the Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't say, you've heard it said, you shall not murder Don't think you can get off that easy. I've added another burden of obedience to you. He doesn't say that. Now, he doesn't say, now, if you can pull off what I've now added, so not even can you murder, not murder, you can't even be angry. If you can pull that off, what I've added to the law, with a great self-righteous flourish, then you can be fit for the kingdom, unlike the scribes and Pharisees, the way that they think that they are. No, Jesus isn't about to break out in a great wisdom teaching to add to the law, but rather to give a profound understanding of the eternal, unchanging way of the king and his kingdom. He's unfolding for us the way of his character, the way of his governance, the way of his kingdom, the way it always has been and the way it always will be. And he's about to do it with a profound flourish of heart-piercing, heart-rending revelation of who we really are before our God that calls to a deep repentance so that the only truly righteous response is not a renewed commitment to self-righteous legalism, but rather a faith-filled poverty of spirit. The point is not that by the end of today, I would have taught you three difficult steps of how not to become angry or lust. And then we all stand up and say, yeah, I'm going to do that this week. 
Thanks, pastor. The goal, yeah, you get it. That's silly. (laughs) The goal is that we would say, oh, my God. I love that kingdom that you've described. Help me. Oh, a kingdom where people aren't even angry? Where Where their hearts don't even covet? That's beautiful, and I don't stand a chance. In other words, I hunger and thirst for righteousness, but I confess it can't be found in me. Jesus, bless this poor, spirited man with entrance into your kingdom. Bless those who hunger and thirst for righteousness so that they would be satisfied. I would summarize it this way. When God gave the Ten Commandments, what he said was sufficient for our understanding. When God sent his prophets to interpret his law, what he said was sufficient for our understanding. When God sent his son to tell that our righteousness must exceed the scribes and the Pharisees, what he said was sufficient. He could have said, that was a short sermon, I know, but I'm done. I've said all you need to know. We are without excuse, but like any good teacher, he now illustrates what he taught sufficiently by bringing it to life with examples and bringing clarity by giving application. And what he's about to teach us by way of application is your external adherence to the law may communicate a form of righteousness, but inside, in the realm of your desires, what do you really want if you could have it your way? Have you ever really asked that question? Especially when you're thinking about the ways of the kingdom? What if you got to be king? What do you really want if you could have it your way? If you could have any kingdom you wanted, would you want Jesus to be the king? Do you really want the kingdom? Do you really want what the king wants? And that's a question that only the heart can answer. I think James says it perfectly. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. In fact, I would recommend writing that in your margin there in Matthew 5. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. I've said it before. I think that James is a beautiful reflection on the Sermon on the Mount in five chapters. What causes quarrels and fights? What causes fights among you, James asks. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend with the world makes himself an enemy with God. Now, there's some good logic. There is a profound argument. James is literally explaining the heart 
of the matter, and the heart of the matter is the heart. Our problem is that we think that we can be at peace with God in our behaviors, our external obedience, and simultaneously desire friendship with the ways of the world. God, I'm going to do what you say. I'm just not going to like it. Is that you? Is that me? Our problem is that we think that we can have peace with God and yet think like that. But if we want to be friends with the world, if we want to walk in its way, even though technically you don't actually disobey the letter of God's law, like I get it, he's judge, he wins, have it your way but you're actually rejecting the way of the kingdom and so rejecting the king himself. The power of the Sermon on the Mount is that an examination of our heart reveals that we are actually enemies of God. The most religious, the most formally obedient among us, is it possible that even we hate the way of God? In our hearts. Now we can move quickly from here because the first two teachings of Jesus are so clear and compelling. They're they're obvious for us, and he, he makes them all the more obvious in the way that he presents them. Look at anger with me for just a moment. Jesus begins with the prohibition against the ultimate fracture of human relationships that takes place through murder. And then he supplies his own interpretation, which goes far beyond the mere preserving of life to the preserving of human relationships. And so we measure the letter of the law, and we know the letter of the law. It's, it's simple and profound. You shall not murder, right? We've got it. Does it need a great deal of explanation? And we measure the letter of that law by the summary of the law. And what is that summary? You shall love the Lord your God, And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And I hold those two up next to each other. And I see that Jesus is bringing twin realities about the way of God into harmony with one another. He's explaining the heartbeat of the law and how it is contrary to our own hearts. So let's ask the question, how does anger murder? Let me do this quickly. It's not a message about anger. It's not a message about murder. It's a message about people like you and I that would be done with God if we had our way. If we had our heart's desires when it comes to the judgment of the people around us, even our brothers and sisters. Anger murders because it would put the person under judgment and then it would see the full sentence and execution. You just don't have the power to do it. Because you know if you went ahead and killed him, you'd get caught. And then you're under judgment too. So you're just angry. If anger had final power over the other, over the other individual, anger would have little room for grace or mercy. Anger simply holds on to the hope of final judgment and penalty for sin. Jesus reveals here the reality of every one of our hearts. With We murder with words from a heart that overflows with murder. 
And Jesus gives three specific examples of anger at work. We could spend a whole message on these three examples, but instead we'll just walk quickly through them. He says, whoever is angry, whoever insults, whoever says, you fool, all of these are murderers. The one who is angry, another insults his brother, calling him raka. It's the word that is used there, or empty-headed nobody. You're a dummy. Worthless. Another calls his brother a fool, a scoundrel, a moral waste of space. What's wrong with these? When they look at their brother, these words don't consider him to be a real human. Not a human who's worthy of respect or dignity as created in the image of his God. They're literally dehumanizing. Empty-headed fool. Moral waste of space. Kent Hughes. Wonderful commentator in his commentary, preach the word. He offers this illustration from his own life. He says, some time ago, my wife and I were watching TV. In the middle of the program, she stepped out for a moment. And when she returned, she asked what had transpired. I responded, a worthless dope peddler was leading these two young boys astray. My wife's response brought me up short. No one is worthless. And she's absolutely right. My sentiment was wrong theologically, emotionally, socially. God loves everyone. Even a debased sinner is dignified by God's creative will. I wonder how much murder goes on in our hearts when we watch the news and call the man with the mugshot a thug, a hoodlum, a moral nobody. I'll tell you, that cuts, that cuts me deep. A bunch of worthless, empty-headed, moral nobodies, whether they're politicians or the mugshot. He says, you'd kill him, wouldn't you? If you were king, you'd kill him, wouldn't you, Jeremiah? Jesus has a point. He then gives two examples how to walk in repentance of our murderous anger. He offers the first example in verse 23. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your your gift. We don't have time to go into how radical that is, where, how far you have to go to get to the altar and then to leave it there and then exit with everyone wondering what in the world's wrong with that guy because he realized that somebody has something against him and they're not wrong. You have a man who's going to worship God. I want you to notice that he realizes that he has genuinely wronged his brother. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say he realized that somebody wronged him and he's about to correct the situation. It doesn't say that, and yet I've heard this passage used more often than not in that context. It doesn't speak to that. The psalmist says in 66, 18, if I cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. The implication, implication for us is clear. We cannot claim to fulfill the way of the kingdom by worshiping God if we simultaneously fail to love 
our brothers. And that point is made over and over again in the scriptures. And I know you're about to rise up with a statement about the grace of God that covers sin. Listen, it does, but the scriptures are clear and speak with a united voice. 1 John 4, 19 through 21. We love because he first loved us. You say you love grace? If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Do we love God at all? If we do, there must be an immediate fruitfulness. There will be an immediate fruit of some form of love and desire and to go to repent before your brother, your sister, whomever you have wronged. He gives another example. Verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. You can see this is going downhill quickly. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. The Sermon on the Mount again rings with a stern warning. When is the time to deal with your sin? When is the time to own your own part? I'm going to hold on to my part so it doesn't come back to bite me. We're going to see how this plays out for a little while. We're going to go before the judge and see if we can get some justice here. Mm -hmm. When do we decide to discern the log in our own eye and see to its removal? Should we go to court, have the judge arbitrate what part we played and what part our brother played in this whole mess that we find ourselves in? The answer from Jesus is today is the day to notice that log sticking out your eye. To notice that wrong that you played. I know there's a whole other side of the story, but do you really want to bring all of that up before the judge? Because he knows what's in your heart. Go and be reconciled today. Own your part Repent of your wrong. Go. Because if you want justice, you'll get it. It's coming. Repent is the command of the kingdom. There was a person who was a sort of, he was at a sort of altar. He was keenly aware of insults and spitting rage all around him. In fact, he was the one who was being murdered on that particular day. This man was dying on a Roman cross as a, he was a sort of sacrifice on an altar to atone for sin, actually. As he hung there as a sacrifice, he had no sins of his own to remember. The only one to come to an altar and not be interrupted by a memory of some lapse of character, some wrongful, angry word. The only one in history who could stay at the altar and worship his God. And he did. The sins of the world were being placed on his shoulders on that day, including the murderous hearts of all who were killing him on that day. What did this man, Jesus, do when he remembered the sins of his murderers? Did he himself harbor bitterness? Did he spit rage? Did he demand to go to court? Jesus, in faith, 
in the justice and mercy of the Father, cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus, who is himself God, giving himself as a sacrifice to atone for those who could not save themselves. In fact, their hearts and our hearts show daily that we cannot atone for ourselves, no matter how much time we spend at the altar. We cannot cover our own sin and be reconciled to God. The goal of the Pharisee is to justify himself. It's the goal of every human heart apart from faith. But this command, when received with faith, teaches us that the goal of the believer is to be justified. Yes, even as we come to love the law of God because it's good, we know that our hearts are condemned and in need of a justifier. No matter our conformity to the law, we will never be counted righteous. Our righteousness can only come by faith. And our hearts begin to find that compelling. How does the memory of the cross of Christ call us to repentance of our murderous hearts? You see, it is at the altar that we should be the most reminded to go and be reconciled. Not because it's demanded of us in order to get to the altar, but because at the altar we saw how beautiful it is. We come to not just do the way of the kingdom. It's at the altar that we come to love the way of the kingdom because he who is loved much, loves much. Then we come to this one, verse 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Again, not a great deal of information needs to be explained here. Like, don't do that. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. This is the teaching of Jesus. A pattern has been set. You've heard it said. We can almost hear the next words that are coming. And and really, these teachings just begin to flow. Because we get get it, Jesus. We see what you're doing here. But when we come to that one, we say, it's a bit extreme, though. (laughs) I mean, really. What are you doing? I mean, is this the kind of interpretation that Jesus is suggesting was really in the law to begin with? Or are you, it seems like you're changing the game. It seems like you're upping the ante a little bit here. Well, let's read it. The seventh commandment is literally the words that Jesus said. He's quoting the Septuagint. The Greek scriptures that Jesus read, he's quoting it word for word. You shall not commit adultery. The seventh commandment, Exodus 20. But just a little bit later in Exodus 20, we have the 10th commandment. And you know what the 10th commandment says? Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. It was there the whole time, wasn't it? It is a hard issue. The whole time, right there, at the end of the law, is a warning that there is far more than external adherence to the law. I want to suggest this, that the first and last commandments are the most ignored commandments because they actually deal with the waywardness of our rebellious 
hearts. You see, we pay attention to the middle commandments, but we ignore the first and last commandments because we believe that we can obtain our own self-righteousness. If we can keep those middle ones. But it's the first that tells us to love the Lord and his way. And it's the last that reveals how quickly we've gone our own way. Even while keeping the whole middle. Fundamentally, our sin, our sinful lust, our covetousness. It declares we don't believe that God's been good. We don't think he's capable of justice. We don't believe that God can really save. We don't believe that forgiveness is good. We don't believe that God is sufficiently provided for us. So we need something that we do not have. We don't believe that under his authority, we could ever truly be happy, truly be fulfilled in the way that, that we're made. And so we lust. We don't believe that God and his way is good. And so, if we're honest, we wouldn't have him as our king. Why then would we ever want to be in his kingdom? Let's just be honest for a minute. And then Jesus goes on to what is often called a radical obedience. What Jesus says in many commentaries, many sermons, gouge your eye out, cut off your hand. Radical, right? Let's be clear. There is no way to bring self-mutilation in line with the teaching of the rest of Scripture. What is being said here is clearly a metaphor. But it's a metaphor that's severe. It's a metaphor that means business. I think of Joseph running away from Potiphar's wife so that he offended her. Think flee sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians 6. But is it, but is it truly radical? Is it like there's discipleship, there's following after Jesus, and then there's this crazy Sermon on the Mount level radical discipleship? Let me suggest that it isn't radical or extreme or some kind of above and beyond discipleship. Anything less than hearty pursuit of Christ at all costs is nothing more than begrudging externalism. External obedience with inner covetousness is play-acting that we love the ways of God while internally desiring that God would be different. God, I would dethrone you if I could, but you're too big, so whatever. If I were king, what joy and satisfaction I would have. Along the way, I've realized that probably the, the most profound definition of sin that I can think of is to be in the presence of the king. To do whatever he says. And inside we're shaking our fists saying, on my own I could live. And we do it. Over and over. I could give you examples of how to go about the battle with lust and anger. It would be a good thing to do. The scriptures are filled with many things that we could learn. But I think there's something far more central for us to see here. That if we don't see it, even our attempts to root out lust will become external, self-righteous acts to prove to God that we're truly fit for his kingdom. We'll manage to obey six commandments, even in some external machinations, you know, some behavior modification, anger management. 
Let me ask you this question. Fundamentally, it boils down to this. Do you love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength? What Jesus is showing us in this sermon is that no matter our posturing, no matter our formal obedience, we simply don't. Our hearts, our anger, and our lust reveal what we truly desire. Let me suggest that before we need accountability groups, and we do, and before we need anger management books, and perhaps we do, what we really need is to take another good look at the king, to consider the way of his kingdom, and ask, is he good? I mean, really good. Is it better? Is there a satisfaction that could be had there if I would lay down my fist of rebellion and trust him? Just for a moment. Do you find anything about Jesus compelling? Do you find anything about the morality that he describes here to be beautiful? He gets to be king. He's going to be king. Do we see that it's beautiful? I find two responses in my heart to the Sermon on the Mount. I've shared them already. I find that I'm drawn to the beauty of what Jesus describes. And simultaneously, I despair that I will ever participate in such a beautiful kingdom. I might be there, but will I ever participate in that kingdom? My heart so quickly wonders. Let me suggest that this question is the root of repentance. It's the poverty of spirit that accompanies the gift of faith. That says, I don't bring righteousness into the kingdom, but the king is righteous. I see it. By grace, I see it. Make me righteous. And he does that by his sacrifice. He declares us righteous and then he works that seed of a love of the king and his kingdom. And he works in it by his word and his spirit so that we, with great joy and stumbling, begin to walk in the way of the kingdom. Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom is rightly called, accompanied by a call to repentance. And this morning that call, it rings out. But let's not merely repent of outward acts. Let's humble ourselves before our God. Cry out to him. Transform not only my way. Transform my heart. Transform my desires. God, show me your kingdom and show me the king. Confess your sin? Yes, yes. But also confess a wayward heart. Lord, change me from the inside out, not only to hate my sin, For I know you forgive by means of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, but teach me to love you that I might truly desire to be raised with you to eternal life in your kingdom. Ezekiel 11, 19 through 20. This is the hope. This is the good news of the kingdom. I will give them one heart. A new spirit I will put within them. I, the Lord says, will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. 
that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Heavenly Father, we who have the smallest mustard seed of faith love that. We long for the day that your people look like they make sense in the presence of a king like that. But it's not going to be because we've finally risen to the level of your righteousness, but we're going to look like that because your grace so perfectly matches a people so poor in spirit. That it's your kindness that leads us to repentance leads us to see the beauty of your way as opposed to our own, to lay down the weapons of our warfare and to submit to the amnesty of the king. Lord, I pray that this morning would not only be a crushing burden, the sermon is, your words are, but Lord, it would also speak of grace, that you have come to us and talked to us about this kingdom at all. And that by the work of Christ, you have made the way for entrance for a people like us. Lord, we trust you. We trust that you would, what you would do even in the next few moments as we reflect and consider what we have heard from your word this morning. Thank you, God. We love you. Just a little bit. And that's grace. Cause us to love you more. We pray this in your name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.